yeah, and I'm just going to go straight into our video for today. So uh, just give me a minute. It's a little bit long, but it's okay because um, my sermon is, I guess, is a little shorter, but I think it's worth watching the whole thing because it's good. It's from a TED Talk by a journalist and writer, uh, Johan Hari. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I was just a little kid, so I didn't really understand why. But as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family, including later cocaine addiction. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately, partly because it's now exactly 100 years since drugs were first banned in the United States and Britain, and we then imposed that on the rest of the world. It's a century since we made this really fateful decision to take addicts and punish them and make them suffer because we believe that would deter them, it would give them an incentive to stop. And a few years ago, I was looking at some of the addicts in my life who I love and trying to figure out if there was some way to help them. And I realized there were loads of incredibly basic questions I just didn't know the answer to. Like, what really causes addiction? Uh, why do we carry on with this approach that doesn't seem to be working? And is there a better way out there that we could try instead? So I read loads of stuff about it, and I couldn't really find the answers I was looking for. So I thought, OK, I'll go and sit with different people around the world who've lived this and studied this and talk to them and see if I can learn from them. And I ended up, I didn't realize I would end up going over 30,000 miles at the start, but I ended up going and meeting loads of different people, from a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see if they like them. Um, <laughs> It turns out they do, but only in very specific circumstances. To, to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs, from cannabis to crack, Portugal. And the thing I realized that really blew my mind is, almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. And if we start to absorb the new evidence about addiction, I think we're going to have to change a lot more than our drug policies. But let's start with what we think we know, what I thought I know, right? Let's think about this middle row here, right? Imagine all of you, for 20 days now, went off and used heroin three times a day. Some of you look a little bit more enthusiastic than others at this prospect. Um, the, don't worry, it's just a thought experiment. Imagine you did that, right? What, do we, what would happen? Now, we have a story about what would happen that we've been told for a century. We think, because there are chemical hooks in heroin, as you took it for a while, your body would become dependent on those hooks, you'd start to physically need them, and at the end of those 20 days, you'd all be heroin addicts, right? That's what I thought. First thing that alerted me to the fact something not right with this story is when it was explained to me, if I step out of this TED Talk today and I get hit by a car and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's actually much better heroin than you're ever going to buy on the streets because the stuff you buy from a drug dealer is contaminated, actually very little of it is heroin, whereas the stuff you get from the doctor is medically pure. And you'll be given it for quite a long period of time. There are loads of people in this room may not realize that you've taken quite a lot of heroin, right? Uh, and, for, and anyone watching this anywhere in the world, this is happening. And if what we believe about addiction is right, those people are exposed to all those chemical hooks. What should happen? They should become addicts. This has been studied really carefully. It doesn't happen. You will have noticed if your grandmother had a hip replacement, she didn't come out as a junkie. <laughs> and when I learned this, it just seemed so weird to me, so contrary to everything I'd been told, everything I thought I knew, I just thought it couldn't be right. Until I went and met a man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver, who carried out an incredible experiment that I think really helps us to understand this issue. Professor Alexander explained to me, the idea of addiction we've all got in our heads, that story, 
comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You can do them tonight when you go home if you feel a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's how we think it works. In the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and he looks at this experiment and he noticed something. He said, ah, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try something a bit different. So Professor Alexander built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of tunnels. Crucially, they've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. You go from almost 100% overdose when they're isolated to 0% overdose when they have happy and connected lives. Now, when we first saw this, Professor Alexander thought, you know, maybe this is just a thing about rats. They're quite different to us, you know, not, maybe not as different as we'd like, but, you know. Um, but fortunately, there was a human experiment into the exact same principle happening at the exact same time. It was called the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, 20% of all American troops were using loads of heroin. And uh, if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really worried because they thought, my God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war ends. It made total sense. Now, those soldiers who were using loads of heroin were followed home. The archives of general psychiatry did a really detailed study. And what happened to them? It turns out they didn't go to rehab. They didn't go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped. Now, if you believe the story about chemical hooks, that makes absolutely no sense. But Professor Alexander began to think there might be a different story about addiction. He said, what if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? What if addiction is an adaptation to your environment? Looking at this, there was another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands who said, maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Human beings have a natural and innate need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now, that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, that might be cannabis, but you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. And I think, you know, at first I found this quite a difficult thing to get my head around, but one way that helped me to think about it is, and I can see, you know, I've got over by my seat there a bottle of water, right? I'm looking at lots of you, and lots of you have bottles of water with you, right? Forget drugs, forget the drug war. Totally legally, all of those bottles of water could be bottles of vodka, right? We could all be getting drunk, I might, after this. Um, and, but we're not, right? Now, because you've been able to afford the approximately a gazillion pounds that it costs to get into a TED Talk, I'm guessing you guys could afford to be drinking vodka for the next six months. You wouldn't end up homeless. You're not going to do that. And the reason you're not going to do that is not because anyone's stopping you. It's because you've got bonds and connections that you want to be present for. You've got work you love. You've got people you love. You've got healthy relationships. And a core part of addiction, I came to think, and I believe the evidence suggests, is about not being able to bear to be present in your life. Now, the conclusion that this writer, journalist, uh, researcher, Johan Hari, 
came to is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection, connection, healthy connections with uh, other people. Okay, and uh, obviously this is on uh, TED Talk, so it's not religious in nature. But I would argue that the opposite of addiction is connections with other people and connection to God, healthy connections to other people and healthy connection to God. And the thing that he says that's uh, really interesting about addiction is that another word that you can use for addiction is bonding, bonding. If human, being, human beings have a natural uh, desire and need to bond with each other, with other human beings, with family, with friends, with other loved ones, and if they don't find healthy ways of bonding with other human beings, and I would argue with God, then they're going to bond in unhealthy ways to other people or um, to things. They will bond to things. And this is how addiction happens. If they don't have healthy bonds with other human beings, like healthy relationships, they will bond with drugs, with alcohol, with gambling, with pornography, or in some instances, guns. And this is what we have seen in the past couple of weeks is that um, people who don't bond with other human beings or with God in healthy ways will bond to other things like guns. Now, most mass shooters have a, a strange and unnatural bond with their guns. Okay, I don't know if you know anyone who's like um, an avid gun owner. I do, okay? And the way that they treat their guns is really strange to me, okay? Maybe it's because I'm not a gun owner and I don't, it's not a hobby of mine, but they, um, they like to like uh, display them, right? Uh, because it's like, they're like really proud of their gun collection. And every once in a while, they'll take it out of the display case and they'll take it apart, right? They'll, um, and then they'll clean it and then they'll put it back together. And sometimes they even give these guns names, right? They give these guns names. And it's just so odd. To, and I never really thought too much about it. I just thought that was interesting. But I wonder if it's because they're lacking in bonding with other human relationships. And unfortunately, this kind of obsession with guns in America have turned very violent at times, right? And in just the past couple of weeks, there have been three mass shootings. Uh, the one in Buffalo, which unfortunately killed a majority of uh, Black Americans. The one in Dallas um, a couple Sundays ago, which killed uh, three Korean American women in like a hair salon. And down in uh, Laguna just last week, uh, which killed like several Taiwanese victims. Now, when I heard about the shooting in Laguna, it's this like kind of older, uh, historically white Presbyterian church, right? And I was like uh, devastated because it's a Presbyterian church. It's a different denomination, but I'm very familiar with this denomination. And so my heart was going out to these um, victims and those congregants, but uh, the victims were not the members of that church. They were members of a Taiwanese church that was renting out that facility. And the shooter was a Chinese gentleman who was racist against Taiwanese people. 
And so in these most recent three shootings that we've seen, most of the victims, uh, the vast majority of the victims were people of color. And the thing that really bothers me about these like shootings is that I wonder if we would be more outraged in this country if the victims were majority white. And unfortunately, more and more of these like victims of these mass shootings have been people of color and we don't really seem to see any change happening uh, in the near future regarding gun laws. And we're living in this very precarious, um, dangerous time right now in our society where the values of our culture are blurred or even blending with the values of our religion. Uh, Americans value guns. And we think if someone tries to um, make stricter gun laws, it's almost like sacrilege to them, right? It's breaking some sort of code. Now, I don't know about like, you know, restricting all gun laws, okay? But there has to be some sort of better reinforcement. Like I even like to go shooting once in a while uh, at the range. Uh, I've gone with uh, Riley a couple of times and it's fun, right? But there has to be something, we can't just do, like do nothing about all of these mass shootings that have been happening lately. And my theory is that as long as people continue to have unhealthy relationships or lack of healthy relationships in their lives, these mass shootings are just gonna get worse and worse and worse. Americans also value money very highly. And we think that if uh, you have more money, somehow you are more blessed by God or you are more anointed by God. And this is even taught in many mega churches in America and is known as the prosperity gospel. So we really have to ask ourselves, what are my core values that come from God and what are my core values that come from the world? And can I distinguish between the two? Okay. And uh, what we're going to examine today is this idea of having bonds of peace. We all bond with other people or things. If we don't bond with people and God in healthy ways, we're going to end up bonding with something else or someone else in unhealthy ways. Because all human beings have this natural innate need to bond. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And you can just look right here. For those of you watching online, I'm going to read it for us because that might be a little hard to read. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. This is uh, Apostle Paul writing these words. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the call you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And that's where we get that phrase from today, bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we examine our lives, examine our relationships, and examine how we bond with other people, with you, or maybe even with material things, would you open our eyes and help us to see whether we are bonding with them in healthy or unhealthy ways? Now, I know that um, having hobbies, having uh, passions, having um, uh, even collections uh, are good for us every once in a while. There are different forms of recreation. But sometimes um, these hobbies, these interests can turn into addictions. And that line is very blurry. When does my occasional trip to Vegas become a gambling problem? When does the occasional beer or liquor turn into a drinking problem? When does um, dating and hooking up with guys become a dependency problem? Lord, would you help us to re-examine the relationships um, and the bonds that we have in our lives to see whether they are uh, bonds of peace or not. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so today we are reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and uh, it is written by the late great Apostle Paul, and he wrote this letter to the church in a city called Ephesus in the first century, shortly after he planted it, uh, around 60 AD, okay? And he entrusted this church that he started to his fellow student and disciple by the name of Timothy, while Paul went on to do more missionary work and start more churches around Asia Minor, parts of Europe, and even parts of Africa. Now, at the time that Paul wrote this letter, he was under house arrest by the Roman government for the continual work that he was doing, and they deemed him as an insurrectionist, saying that he was trying to upend the Roman government. But the beautiful thing about being under house arrest is that he could still write letters to people he loves and to these different churches, like the church in the city of Ephesus. So, and he was addressing some of the issues and concerns that they were experiencing in this church in the city of Ephesus. Now, the Ephesians were very interesting people. Uh, Ephesus was predominantly Greek and pagan in its background. So the members of the Ephesian church were mostly from pagan backgrounds. So when they converted to Christianity, when they became followers of God, when they became Christians, uh, they, be, they, came, they went from being like polytheistic meaning they believe in many gods, to monotheistic, meaning they believe in one God. They were learning what it meant to be morally upright and to be a faith-based community. And it was difficult for them to change all of these aspects of their lifestyle right away. In fact, uh, the Ephesian Christians had a lot of recurring issues. Um, they, uh, for example, Ephesians were known to have 
uh, constant uh, orgies in the temple of Artemis as an act of corporate worship to the goddess Artemis. They would also have these like drunken debaucheries as celebrations that would sometimes last for days, as uh, uh, Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And when they do this, they do these things behind closed doors and never talk about them. It was just a part of their lives, but they weren't necessarily proud of it, and they definitely didn't want to discuss it in the church, okay? Because something about those practices uh, they knew was not okay. So it was like they were living these like double lives, okay? Uh, they considered themselves to be believers and people of the faith, but they could not let go of some of these like former practices of their uh, previous lives. One prime example of this is how Ephesians loved to argue, debate, and put other people down. And this is because most of them came from these like Greco-Roman backgrounds, which highly valued power. Okay, power was like the main dominant value of the Greco-Roman culture at the time, right? And they believed that to have power and to act powerfully was the most admired. So, uh, and this goes against like the primary core value of Christianity, which is love, right? It's in direct conflict with this value of love. So uh, the bond of peace is kind of contrary to the bond of power or what we'll call today the bond of discord, okay? Okay, here are some of the, uh, this is like a very, very basic, simple definition that I came up with for both of these. <coughs> Bonds of peace, okay? Healthy, connected, and growing relationships. These are a healthy, connected, and growing relationships. If you are in a bond of peace with God, okay? It's healthy, it's regularly connected. Connected meaning like it's re you're regularly communicating with them, Okay, they're healthy connections and they're growing relationships. Okay, being in a relationship with God will help you grow. But if you're in a bond of peace with another human being, it's mutually beneficial. You'll help each other become better people. That's what a bond of peace is. All right, a bond of discord or a bond of power, as maybe the first century Greco Romans would call it, are unhealthy. Okay, uh, or toxic, some people like to call it toxic, or disruptive, or they are life draining, okay, disruptive meaning like it's, it's not regularly connection, it's not regular connection, um, they kind of drain life out of you rather than like breathe life into you, right, and so that's typically what a bond of discord looks like, and this is described relatively simply in today's passage in verses two and three, okay? And I laid it down in a little chart for you. If this would work. All right, and this is, you can find these words in verses uh, two and three, okay, of today's passage that I just read. Okay, well, let me just read verses two and three for us as you look at this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. 
okay? So all of these like qualities, characteristics that Apostle Paul listed are uh, what makes bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, uh, patience, it's not patience, so sorry. Uh, patience, sharing burdens, unity, and ultimately love. Okay, uh, and I tried to find like the opposite of these things and that would make like bonds of discord or bonds of power. Okay, the opposite of humility is pride. Okay, in a bond of discord, there's a lot of pride involved. And so there's, uh, that plays a big factor in the relationship. Uh, the opposite of gentleness is aggressiveness. Okay, if there is like this unhealthy relationship, a bond of discord, um, there's a lot of aggression. There's a lot of aggressiveness there. Where one tries to kind of dominate or force the other to do things, um, or maybe there's even like manipulation involved. Uh, the opposite of patience is intolerance. There's a lot of like intolerant attitude, intolerant behavior involved. The opposite of sharing burdens is selfishness. Okay, you're only concerned about yourself, your own burdens, and you don't want to carry or help someone else with their burdens. And the opposite of unity is antagonism, right? You're constantly trying to like break apart or um, disturb the unity. And lastly, the opposite of love is either apathy or hate, okay? Um, most people say that the opposite of love is hate, but actually I think apathy is more like the opposite of hate because, uh, or apathy is more like the opposite of love because hate, at least there's still some emotion involved, right? Apathy, there's like absolutely nothing, right? So this is like a very basic, simple uh, difference between bond of peace and bond of discourse. And all of these words you'll find in verses two and three of today's passage. But the beautiful thing that Apostle Paul says in verse three is make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit um, through the bond of peace. Make every effort. So there's actually only so much you can do as one person, right? There's, there's only so much you can do. And if the other person is not willing to make this bond that you have between you two peaceful, I mean, there, there, has, there has to be ways where maybe you can um, kind of minimize contact with this person or, um, I mean, there's only so much one person can do. And so the reason why um, I felt compelled to share this idea of bond of peace with you today is because um, in this like restart series is because God has been challenging me to re-examine the relationships in my own life and to ask myself what relationships are bonds of peace and what relationships are actually bonds of discord. If they are bonds of discord, can I put in more effort to make them into bonds of peace? And even if I do put in more effort and they still are bonds of discord, how should I minimize my connections with them? 
Okay, so which is why in the reflection questions um, in the bulletins today, and I'm actually gonna post this on our website later tonight too. What are the various bonds of peace and bonds of discord in your life? Just kind of like re-examine some of the key relationships that you have in your life. And how is God inviting you to engage in those relationships? How is God inviting you to engage in those relationships? Let's pray. Let's take a minute now uh, in quiet reflection and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal key relationships in your life that need to be re-examined. How is God inviting you to engage? Lord, help us to be the bringers of peace to the places, the people in our lives. And may this peace come from a healthy, connected, and steady relationship that we have with you. Lord, you did not come to simply have us remain as we are. You came to give us life and life to the fullest. So Lord, help us to really examine our lives and ask ourselves, where are the bonds of peace and where are the bonds of discord that need to be re-examined? And help us to find the wisdom, patience, discernment, and love to transform those relationships if we need to or to minimize those connections if we need to. We thank you and we pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. Have a blessed week.